remain standing for our epistle lesson from Romans 2, which is also the sermon text. Give your ear, because this is God's infallible word. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge for whatever you judge another you condemn yourself for you who judge practice the same things but we know that the judgment of god is according to truth against those who practice such things and do you think this o man you who judge those who practice such things and doing the same that you will escape the judgment of god Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our rock. Amen. Please be seated. In Romans 1, Paul showed how the pagan Gentiles have rejected God and how God has given, given them over and is giving them over to the idols of their choice. Paul's critique of the sins of the pagans would have been roundly supported by any religious Jew, right? So, so any religious person reading Romans 1, you know, they're amening. And go, go get him, Paul. Like the, like the Jews of Jeremiah's time, thinking back to Bobby's sermon a, a couple weeks ago, uh, who could not believe that God would ever judge them. You know, they got the temple, they're the people of God. Well, the Jews during Paul's time believed they were exempt from God's wrath as well because they were the law-keeping covenant people of God. And of course, as Paul writes this to the Christian church in Rome, which was made up of Gentiles and Jews, and mostly Gentiles, he's speaking to the religious types there as well, not just the Jews. That's how religious people even today read the second half of Romans 1. That's how we might read it, right? Yes, we say, of course God's wrath is on the immoral, idolatrous unbeliever who lives a life of debauchery. But I have the word of God. I'm baptized and I live by God's word and I don't practice such things. I'm not condemned. No judgment for me. Religious people will enthusiastically agree with Paul's words in Romans 1, his hard words in Romans 1, 18 to 32. All of those rampant sinners in the world deserve death. But if that's how you read Romans 1, or if it's the only way you read Romans 1 for sure, and it 
And it probably is to some extent how we all read Romans 1, right? There's a, there's a little you know, a little Pharisee in each one of us, a little hypocrite in each one of us, maybe a big one. Uh, but if that's how we read Romans 1, then we, we miss the point, or at least we don't get all of the point. Paul knows how self-righteous religious people will read the second half of Romans 1, how self-righteously they will read it. So in chapter 2, he, he dumps a, a bucket of ice-cold water on us. He turns to the law-keeping religious person, man, oh man, he says, who's been enjoying Paul dressed down pagan unrighteousness in chapter 1. He turns and he says, like Nathan the prophet, you are the man. Are you sure you're any different, he says. You look different because you go to church and you keep the law and you appear to be religious and you, and, and you, know, you even pronounce judgment on the right things, on the right sins, on, on, on people who practice those sins listed at the end of chapter one, those 30 or so different sins. And your judgmental spirit makes you look righteous and pious. Your spirit of criticism may, in fact though, be an indication that you are under judgment and that you in fact practice the same sins often we are self-righteous about those things that we ourselves practice and if that's you Paul says if you're that judgmental self-righteous person who criticizes others more harshly than you criticize your own behavior then you are under judgment God's wrath is coming for you just as surely as it is for the pagan. And as we think about this, though, we need to recognize that even if we know we're not under God's wrath in the ultimate, final, full sense, right, under his judgment in that, in that final, full, condemning sense, we surely can't read this without seeing ourselves here, the old Adam at work, even in these words of Paul. Those who practice what they judge, Paul says, store up judgment for themselves. That's what he says in the first three verses. They, they pronounce judgment. They pronounce judgment on themselves, and God pronounces judgment on them. Right? He kind of gets at it from both angles in, in verse 1 and then verse 2 and 3. The text says, starting in verse 1, Therefore you are without excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For when you judge another, you pronounce judgment on yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Verse 2, and we know that the judgment of God on those who practice such things is according to truth. Now do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet also do them, that you will escape the judgment of God? No one truly lives up to his own standard. The older I get, the more I realize that I apply my standards to others more consistently than I apply it to myself. I hate it, but it's true. Can you identify with that? I see this especially with my kids, unfortunately. I tend to be the most critical toward my children when they're committing my besetting sins. You know, they, they, they irritate me the most when they're imitating my shortcomings. Parents, can you identify with that? <laughs> I got an amen over here, I think. 
This also plays out in marriages all the time. Christian husbands are often keenly aware of the biblical requirements for wives. And Christian wives are often keenly aware of the biblical requirements for husbands. And we can easily find ourselves obsessing over the speck in our spouse's eye and become blind to the plank in our own eye. Jesus addresses this same kind of hypocrisy that Paul's addressing in his Sermon on the Mount. Why do you see the, in chapter 7 of Matthew, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The interesting thing about that passage is that Jesus doesn't forbid us from, make, from taking the specks, uh, or maybe even the logs, if that's the case, out of other people's eyes, if that if that's needs to be done. It, it does need to be done sometimes. There are times for helping your child or your spouse or your neighbor or your fellow church member to, to come alongside them and help them get the speck out of their eye. That's, that's an okay, a good, and right thing to do. So neither Jesus nor Paul is saying that judging others in itself is always wrong. There's a place for making judgments about others. In fact, Jesus himself is judging in this passage I just read. You hypocrites, he says. And Paul himself is judging in our passage today. Like Jesus, he's addressing the hypocrisy of self-righteous religiosity. But oh, how difficult it is to be more concerned about our own logs than we are about others' specks or logs. We religious types have got to be ever vigilant, ever humble, ever self-aware, lest in judging others we pronounce judgment on ourselves. The end of verse 1 says, for you who judge practice the same things. In the immediate context, Paul is pointing us back to the catalog of sins in verses 29 to 31 in chapter 1. He, he, you know, he could have expanded that. It includes a lot more than that too. And remember, the majority of that list, if you go back and look at it, the majority of that list is not about actions, you know, like sins that you can see and, and, and put a, a, a time date stamp on. Paul's focus there in that list is on, some of them are, but Paul's focus in that list is on the attitude of the inner person, you know, the heart. He refers primarily to the kinds of sins that you can hide from others if you're clever enough. Paul has us concentrating on our hearts more than on our hands because it all starts in our hearts. Uh, you see, a, a sophisticated sinner, as most of us have, have become, a sophisticated sinner can keep most of the sins in that list a secret. In another place in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. God isn't just concerned about the sins that come out of your mouth or out of your hands. 
He wants you to be concerned about the wickedness inside of you that's boiling and bubbling like lava in a volcano crater. It's easy for most of us to get to the end of a, a day or the end of a week and say, well, I, I, haven't, I haven't murdered anyone this week. But it's a lot more difficult to get to the end of that day or the end of that week and say, I haven't despised anyone. I haven't been angry with anyone. I haven't fantasized about telling anyone off. I, 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 ha- I haven't wished that some, something unfortunate would happen to anyone. I haven't treated anyone as if they were unworthy of my love and my attention, my graciousness. Physical murder is hard to get away with, but you can hate or envy someone with a smile on your face, right? And it's easy to hate someone while you're judging all those murderers out there. It's easy to find yourself doing that. Paul's challenge in this passage is not to refrain from judgment altogether. I say that again. He says in 1 Corinthians 2.15, in fact, that the spiritual person judges all things. So we are to use discernment and judgment, including about sin. In fact, if we don't exercise our judgment muscles, we'll become like those at the end of Romans 1 who just end up applauding sins and sinners, encouraging, approving, because we make no judgments, we make no pronouncements about good and evil. So we don't want to do that. The, challenging, the challenge and, and warning of Romans 2 is to make sure that your judgment of sin is not centered out there. Make sure that when you judge all things, as you ought to do, you begin with you and keep yourself always at the epicenter of your, of your judgmental eye. Never let your, judge, your, your self-judgment move to the outer edges of your judgmental scope. Never let it just be, become on the periphery or... Out of, out of sight altogether. Never lose sight of your own boiling and bubbling crater of red-hot wickedness. Never become more obsessed about destroying the idols out there, outside of you, than you are about destroying the idols inside of you. And never, ever believe for a second that others are worthy of God's righteous judgment while you are not. Or at least not as, not as worthy. This is the road of the hypocrite that Paul wants to keep us off of. You must beware of your natural tendency to be harsher and hastier in your criticisms of others than you are of yourself. And you need to know how dangerous of a tendency this is and how good you are, how good we all are at blinding yourself to how this phenomenon works in your particular heart. When we evaluate our own sins, we're inclined to find all sorts of excuses 
and extenuating circumstances. Paul uses that same word he used in Romans 1, without excuse. You know, we want to excuse ourselves, but there is no excuse. We, yet we're inclined to find them. You know, I was, I was provoked. They pushed me to the end of my rope. I was tired. Or everyone was doing it, as kids sometimes say. Maybe adults sometimes say. And we become experts at comparative analysis. Well, my sin wasn't as bad as that other person's. And plus, he started it. But when we evaluate the unrighteousness of others, are, are we as creative and, and gracious, right? <clears throat> we, we tend to be far more black and white. We're quick to notice the sin and slow to consider the burdens that they may be carrying. John Stott puts it this way, we work ourselves up into a state of self-righteous indignation over the disgraceful behavior of other people while the very same behavior seems not nearly so serious when it is ours rather than theirs. I also like what Tim, Cal Tim Keller says about this. He writes, condemning others while excusing ourselves is what allows us to hang on both to our right self-righteousness and to our sin. See, at the same time, that, that's how our sinful nature works. And that's what our sinful nature wants. It wants to cling to our sins while also clinging to our self-righteous judgment even of those same sins. That's, that's where we want to be in our flesh. And our method for making this happen is condemning others while excusing ourselves. The, the human heart can be so grotesquely twisted that it can find pleasure in condemning a sin, a sin and find pleasure in committing that sin at the same time. If you think you're above this, then you don't know yourself very well yet. Paul says that when we do this, we pronounce judgment on ourselves. In other words, when God judges my works on the final day, and, and we all will face a righteous judgment. Some of us will be under the mercy of God in that judgment of our works. Some will not. But we all face a final judgment. That righteous judgment at the end of verse 5, it applies to everyone. Paul says that when we do this kind of thing, we pronounce judgment on ourselves that will come to fruition on the final day when he holds me accountable for every careless word I have spoken, he will not only judge me according to his perfect and righteous standard, according to his truth, as the text says, he will also judge me according to the standard by which I judged others. On the final day, the counsel for the prosecution will be me. He will use the judgments that I've made with my own mouth as the standard by which he judges me. Once again, we find confirmation of this in the words of Jesus. At the beginning of Matthew 7, he says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Can there be any greater motivation for being gracious? in our judgment of others than this verse. 
Francis Schaeffer used to say that everyone is walking around with, a, with an invisible recorder hanging from our necks. It, it records everything you say to and about others. Every, everything you, you say about how others ought to live and how they're not measuring up. Everything you say about how others are falling short. Then on judgment day, God will take that recorder off your neck and, and he'll play it back and, and he'll judge you according to the high standards for human behavior that you applied to other people. Paul asks in verse three, do you suppose you will escape the judgment of God? You think you're going to escape God's judgment unscathed, unjudged? Well, nobody will, even those of us who are covered in the righteousness of Christ. Still have to face judgment. God will judge our works. Salvation is not dependent on that. It's not based on that. But the scriptures are clear that the living and the dead, the righteous and the unrighteous will face judgment. Do you suppose that you will escape unscathed? If you can, you know, blithely answer, sure, sure, I'll escape judgment. I'm, I'm a covenant member. If you can, if Paul's question doesn't infuse you with holy fear on account of your hypocrisy, if it, if it doesn't drive you yet again to the mercy seat of God, if it doesn't humble you before God and men, if it doesn't convince you yet again that you're the chief sinner, then I fear you're perilously unaware of what you've done and what you're capable of. We're all in danger of becoming the Pharisee in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. We're all in danger of becoming the elder son in the parable of the prodigal son, the parable of the two sons that Bobby read for us earlier. Self-righteous religion, when it is full-grown, gives birth to death. And this self-righteous religion that gives birth to death is just as much a rejection of God and his kindness as the non-religious wickedness in Romans 1. Those who self-righteously and hypocritically judge others are despising God's kindness, his loving kindness, even his, what the Old Testament calls chesed, his kindness and devotion that he shows his people. You're despising the kindness and the forbearance and patience of God. And those who despise God's kindness store up wrath for themselves. That's what verses four and five say. Look at those two verses with me again. Or do you despise the abundance of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, unaware that the kindness of God intends to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you store up for yourself wrath on the day of the wrath, revelation, and righteous judgment of God. Quick note on that final 
verse there, that final sentence, he refers to the day, I put capital D in, in my translation, actually a lot of, the, lot of translations do that when, when, when the apostles refer to the day of final judgment, it's a capital D day. And, it, and Paul says here it's a day of the wrath, revelation, and righteous judgment of God. That first one, wrath, just applies to unbelievers. But the second two words, revelation and righteous judgment, apply to all of us. It's going to be a day of, revelation is often a word the New Testament uses to refer to that day because it's a day that Jesus will appear. He will be revealed to us. We will see him. The whole world will see him. It'll be a day of revelation, revealing when Jesus returns. And it's also going to be a day of righteous judgment when God judges the living and the dead, including us. And when you evaluate sinners and exercise judgment, is your heart as soft as God is, even even in this text as we see it in Paul's words? God is patient with sinners, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now we can speak forth the truth boldly as we ought as we must do and still show the kindness and patience and forbearance of God and do you do that when you judge see God patiently waits for the unrepentant to repent it's in his nature to do so his goal in showing kindness and patience is that they turn from their way and live it's not in his heart as we saw last week to afflict judgment on the sons of men he doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked rather he takes pleasure in their repentance is this your attitude toward those you judge is that the framework framework that you work from if not then your judgment is not the judgment of the spiritual person are you kind and patient toward those that need to repent and need to repent desperately. If not, then, if, that, if that's not you, then let God's kindness and patience toward you lead you to repentance in this matter. Turn from your self-righteousness and glory in the righteousness of God that he has given to you freely. The self-righteous hypocrisy of the religious type in the first part of Romans 2 is just as anti-God as the atheistic paganism in the last part of Romans 1. Do you see that? Paul's using similar language in both passages to tie them together for us and to see that he's talking about two sides of the coin of unbelief or wickedness. The, the, the pagan suppresses the knowledge of God. He indulges his desires in a particular way and he fails to give thanks to God or fares, fails to glorify God. The self-righteous person acknowledges God but practically sees no need for him. He's practically an atheist because he has a, a righteousness of his own. The self-righteous person, person is his own savior and everyone else's critic. He's his own defender and everyone else's prosecutor. 
Tim Keller insightfully points out that the self-righteous person is in need of recognizing that he is the man. He is the one who needs the kindness of God that Paul is talking about here in Romans 2. There's some irony here, right? The self-righteous person is the one in need of the very kindness that he doesn't recognize, that he doesn't respond to. Keller says that the self-righteous attitude is, quote, the attitude of the person who welcomes God's wrath on others but thinks they themselves are entirely exempt. They see no need for repentance and have no realization that God is kindly holding back his judgment in order to give them an opportunity to turn to him in humility and for mercy. And this, too, is a presumptuous contempt for his kindness. End quote. Romans 1 and 2 set out the same two kinds of people that Jesus sets out in that parable from Luke 15 about the elder son and the younger prodigal son. In that parable, there's a father with, with two sons. The younger son is the Romans one sinner. He's filled with all manner of unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, greed. He's disobedient to parents without understanding, without loyalty, and unloving. Those are words taken from Romans 1 there. But then there's the older son who is the Romans 2 sinner. He's outwardly obedient. He complies with all of his father's wishes and commands. Well, except, of course, for, for when, he want, when the father wants him to show mercy and kindness to his younger brother except for that one. The point of that parable is that the self-righteous older brother, despite appearances, is just as lost as the profligate younger brother. They both need to be saved equally. They both need to let the kindness of their father lead them to repentance. The day of God's wrath, revelation, and righteous judgment awaits both of them. And unless they repent, that wrath is coming upon them. In verse 5, Paul uses the words stubbornness, stubbornness and unrepentant. In the Greek Old Testament, these words are associated routinely with the sin of idolatry. Paul's point here is that while the, you know, he talks about idolatry a lot in Romans 1, but but now Paul's saying that the religious obedience of the self-righteous person is actually a form of idolatry. It looks godly, but it's just as idolatrous as those sins in people we were talking about in Romans 1. The religious idolater, he, he may have rejected all of the popular cultural you know, idols that, that, you know, that the rest of society is worshiping. He, 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 may, he may not be guilty of casual sex or gender confusion or feminism. He may not worship sports or career. He may not indulge in prodigal living. But he still has just as many idols in his heart. He finds his self-worth in his Morality and his standards 
in his law keeping, in his tight theological system. He finds his pleasure in judging others. He finds his salvation in keeping rules. He finds his justification in himself. At the beginning of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18, Luke introduces the parable by saying something very interesting. Before he gets to Jesus' words, records Jesus' words, Luke says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. That's the word faith, believe, believed in themselves. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous and who treated others with contempt. And those two things always go together. Trusting yourself for righteousness, for justification, and treating others with contempt. That's the besetting sin or the possible sin, the danger of the religious type. Does that describe you? Does that intro to that parable describe you? The the unsettling thing about passages like this one is that no one can escape from the judgment unscathed. Unscathed. That's, that's the unsettling thing about this. I mean, I know that I trust in the righteousness of God. I have the assurance of my salvation. I know better than to trust in myself for my righteousness. And yet I often find myself being self-righteous and treating others with contempt, even if only in my head or heart. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? To jump ahead in Romans. That's the question that Paul asks at the end of Romans 7. And he provides the answer in the next verse. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He doesn't leave the question unanswered. There's good news. There's a good answer to that question. The Lord Jesus delivers us from our hypocrisy and self-righteousness. For those he has saved, he is sanctifying them by ridding them of that, ridding us of our hypocrisy. That's the good work of our Lord. And the message here in Paul's text is that we religious people need to be saved too. We're just as much in need of the grace of God as all of those idolaters out there. We churchgoers need to be delivered from, from these bodies of sin and death. The religious idolaters in Romans 2 can be just as anti-God and anti-gospel as the irreligious idolaters in Romans 1. The elder son, that son who stayed at home and was faithful to his father, he was just as far away from his father as the younger son who was wasting his inheritance on prodigal living in a far country. They both need to repent and be reconciled to their father. God has revealed his righteousness so that sinners might turn from their sins and receive it, receive that righteousness. And those of you who have received it, those of us who have received it, must continue turning from our sins 
until we die or until Jesus returns. So think about what you're storing up on that recorder that's hanging on your neck. Are you storing up wrath for yourself on the final day when God pushes play? Are you storing up judgments? Or do you know that you're a miserable sinner, the chief of sinners, who deserves death? Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Oh God, save us from our tendency to self-righteousness. Save us through your righteousness that you freely give to us in Jesus. We thank you that you have done so. We thank you that you have delivered us and are delivering us from these bodies of death. Thanks be to the Lord Jesus Christ for that deliverance. And we pray that even this week you will continue to sustain us, that you will preserve us and keep us and draw us away from sin and to you through the power of the gospel, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the power of the word of God proclaimed and that you will do so for the sake of your Son and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.